Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. We're going to pick up where we left off in Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17. If you remember last time, we took the first half of chapter 7. We're going to finish the chapter this time with a little bit of review on a couple of things that we talked about last time because... I forgot to reiterate a couple of points I wanted to drive home, so if you'll bear with me, we've got a couple of extra slides, but I think it'll be fruitful and worth it, so hang tight. So, number one, uh, let's claim this blessing over all of us, that this is the only book of the Bible we are studying that proclaims a blessing upon he that reads and they that hear the words of this book, of this prophecy, and It's chapter 1, verse 3, blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy. So all of us in this room are the they that are hearing the words, right? But what really stood out to me this week as I was thinking about it is there's a personal application here, he that reads. You You can't have somebody read it for you. You can't have somebody take that blessing for you by reading it. Now you can hear it, but there's a personal responsibility to he that reads it also. And so just keep that in mind. I I would encourage you, the book of Revelation isn't that long. It's 22 chapters. It's pretty short. Actually, the chapters aren't that long. So read it in a weekend and then read it again next weekend and then read it again and go through it. Keep going through it because every time we walk through it verse by verse, you're going to get something new out of it that maybe we haven't even talked about. So I would just encourage you, and my goal in going through this book verse by verse is to give you a sense of urgency to dig into it for yourself and to dig out those treasures that God has in his word from Proverbs 25.2. It's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. So do that. So we're going to claim that blessing today. Now, we're getting into the back half of chapter 7. We've gone through the throne room experience in chapters 4 and 5. We went through chapter 6, which were the first six seals of the scroll, and then we got into, we're now into chapter 7, where it's kind of a break, and we're seeing something else that is going on in the world during this time, which is fascinating. But just remember, and we're going to reiterate this every week for a couple of minutes, because it's important. We have new people coming in, new people are watching online every week. So the sequence, Jesus does not unseal and allow this to come upon the earth until he takes the scroll. He does not come forward to take the scroll until the throne room audience, the thrones are set, and we look for a man that's worthy. The thrones are not set until the 24 elders, which represent the church, are in heaven. And so thus, you're not going through this. If you are in Christ, you are not experiencing this time. It's just important to have that perspective as we go through the book of Revelation. So you always want to keep that in mind, which should encourage you with a sense of urgency to get as many people as you know that are not in Christ in Christ now. Because once the rapture happens, once that ark, the door to the ark closes, they can be saved still, but it's going to be very, very difficult. We're going to see that today. The tribulational saints are the back half of chapter 7. So we're going through, we went through the six seals, and then we're in that break. So each of these three, it's a heptatic structure. There's seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And then there's a break between the sixth and the seventh of all three of these. And so you've got the break between the sixth seal and the seventh seal is chapter seven. It's an entire chapter, which is, we're taking two weeks on it. In the trumpets, the break is four chapters between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. You have four chapters, 10 through 14. They're describing other things going on in the world during this time. Then with the six bowls, after the six bowls, the the break is one verse. It's chapter 16, verse 15, and then the seventh bowl. And then it culminates all things with Jesus returning, setting up the millennial reign for a thousand years, and then a new heaven and a new earth after that. It's very exciting. We're going to get into that. So the 
Chapter 7 is broken up into two sections. Verses 1 through 8 detail the 144,000 from 12 tribes of Israel. And the back half, verses 9 through 17, detail the fruit of people that are saved during this time. An innumerable multitude of people are saved during this time. It's probably going to be the greatest revival on planet Earth's history will be during this time. And there's a lot of reasons for that, and we'll look at those in just a minute. But we're on part two today, the back half. So the back half starts off with chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I beheld. Okay, the after this means after what? After the sealing of the 144,000. And so God is very literal in his word here. These are 12,000 Jewish people from 12 tribes of Israel. The, the ceiling of the 144,000. You know, when you, you may have run across people that go around and knock on doors and they try to convince you they are one of the 144,000. And you could just ask them, well, what tribe are you from? And they maybe don't really know. <laughs> but don't let, it, don't let them confuse you. This does not happen until the tribulation. Okay, keep that in mind. And it's from 12 of the 14 tribes of Israel. And so... A little recap here. The 12 tribes of Israel. Now, we know them because Jacob had 12 sons. But when Joseph goes down to Egypt, he has two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And when Jacob comes down, he adopts Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, as his own. And thus, that's why in the Bible, God always has 14 names to choose from, but he always only picks 12 when he makes a list of the tribes of Israel. And I think, if I remember right, it's, they show up 29 different times in the Bible, all of them in a different order, and all of them with different names re removed or included for very specific reasons. And so when you look at the, the family tree, you had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had Reuben, Judah, Simeon, Issachar, Levi, and Zebulun. Those are all from Leah. Joseph and Benjamin from Rachel. Dan and Naphtali from Bilhah and Gad and Asher from uh, Zilpah. So you have these 12 sons of Jacob. Now, what's important to remember is that from chapter 4 through chapter 19 in the book, everything is Jewish. The church is never named again in the, in the book of Revelation. After, after chapter 3, the church is gone. It's not even named in the book. Whereas in chapters 1, 2, and 3... The name church, the church is named over and over and over and over again. It's a structural clue that the church is not there after chapter 4, verse 1 on. And we did a deep dive on the rapture when we were at that point in the book. But everything from chapter 4 on is Jewish. You have even the titles of Jesus are Jewish. The line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the son of Jesse, on and on it goes. It's very Jewish. And so here in chapter 7, the 12 tribes that are sealed are, again, it's, it's Jewish, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. So at the beginning of chapter 7, after these things, we had that list of the 12 tribes that were sealed. We had Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. And again, the list in our Bible is transliterated, meaning how do their names sound when you pronounce them? They're not translated in terms of what do the names actually mean when you write out their name. And if they were translated, it would give you a different clue as to what, why God orders this list the way he does. And so what you need to keep in mind is that every single detail in the Bible is there deliberately, by design, by the Holy Spirit, and God intends you to dig through it and to figure out why does he care about the genealogy? Why does he care about listing names? Why does he care about numbers? Why does he care about place names? And when you dig into it and you realize all of that points to Jesus, it all points to the Messiah, somehow your key is to figure out how does it point to Jesus? Uh, in Psalms 40, verse 7, Jesus says, in the volume of the book, it's written of me. And he quotes that in Hebrews. And in other words, there is not a single detail in the Bible that does not somehow point to our Messiah because the word became flesh, right, and tabernacled amongst us from John 1. So when you have this list, it was important to know why did God put them in this order? 
Dan was missing for a lot of specific reasons we looked at last time. If you want to dig into that, you can check out last week's message. Uh, Joseph is there, and Manasseh is there, but Ephraim is missing. And so really, Ephraim is there kind of hidden. But when you translate these names, you get quite a different picture. Uh, Judah means praise the Lord. Reuben, he has looked upon my affliction. Gad is granted good fortune. Asher is happy am I. Nephtali is my wrestling. Manasseh has made me forget my sorrow. Simeon, God hears me. Levi has joined me. Issachar has purchased me. Zebulon has exalted me. Joseph adding to me. And Benjamin, the son of his right hand. So when you look at the list, you have a description of what we have in Christ right there buried within the list of these 12 tribes of Israel that are sealed. Praise the Lord. He has looked on my affliction, granted good fortune. Happy am I. My wrestling has made me forget my sorrow. God hears me, has joined me. Now, how did he join us? Obviously through Jesus, right? He joined us in our predicament. Purchased me, exalted me, adding to me the son of his right hand. And you can get an idea of what these names mean when you go all the way back to the Old Testament. Whenever someone has a child, they always will say something like when Eve had Seth, God hath appointed me another son. So Seth literally meant appointed. So you have this list. And what I would encourage you to do is take these type of names and go through the Bible and figure out what do these names mean? Why are they there? Why are genealogies there? And to give you one more hint of that, when you go to the very first genealogy, the entire Bible, it's in Genesis 5 from Adam to Noah. And so when you translate these names it's man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing comfort or rest. And so you have the entire gospel message buried within the very first genealogy of the Bible from Genesis 5. And Methuselah, he was the oldest man in the Bible to live from an, a, an age standpoint, I should say, 969 years. And what, there was a prophecy in the Jewish culture that the flood would not come until he died. So literally his name meant his death shall bring. And surely when you lay out the genealogies, the year Methuselah dies, the flood comes on the entire earth, which is really interesting. And of course, through Noah, we had comfort or rest. But really that whole genealogy points to Jesus as our comfort or rest. And so after this, after the sealing of the 144,000, and lo, a great multitude. Okay, the word great here is uh, polys, and it literally means an innumerable multitude, which no man could number. You get a hint of that next in the verse, which no man could number. Of all nations, kindreds, and people, and tongues. Now, this word's used a lot in the New Testament. If you track this word down, it's all over the Bible. But a couple that I found very interesting, James chapter 5, verse 16 Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much or avails to an innumerable stature. Okay, your prayers mean something. And do not ever take for granted that God hears your prayer. And if you are in Christ, he wants you to pray to him. He wants you to ask him. For things, needs, whatever you have in your life, your prayer avails in an innumerable amount. You can't even count how much your prayers matter to our God. Okay, in Revelation 5, verse 11, and I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. So, Again, it's an innumerable number of angels around the throne. And it's hard to picture that, you know, the throne room is not in a three-and-a-half-dimensional space like we live within. It's, it's what in mathematics we would call a hyperdimension. And so it's hard to imagine this innumerable number of angels in a hyperdimensionality where we will be there, every eye can see Jesus. He's going to come forward and take that scroll, and it's going to be the greatest event really in the history of man, when he takes back what he rightfully paid for. So the innumerable multitudes out of every area on planet Earth, notice this. The tribulation is not a localized issue. Jesus talked over and over that this time would be the greatest time of trouble 
the earth has ever seen. In other words, you do not want to be there. And we've gone through a lot of turbulent times in man's history. Um, latest one in our lifetime or in some of our lifetimes would be like World War II. You know, that was a hard time on the earth. But Jesus says this time will be exponentially greater in trouble and will be on the entire earth. So notice they come out of every kindreds and people and tongues and they stood before the throne and before the Lamb. So can you imagine 144,000 sealed evangelists that are Jewish by nature? And keep in mind, Jesus is a national king. He's the king of the Jews. Pilate wrote that on the cross in three languages, in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. We serve a national king. But when you get Jews that are on fire for Christ, it is there is no stopping them. Uh, God has a very specific plan for these people. 144,000 sealed evangelists going around the globe declaring the gospel of Jesus during this time. And they are untouchable. They're supernaturally sealed. We looked at that last time from Ezekiel 9, the man clothed in linen coming forward and putting a cross on their forehead and sealing them for the day of redemption. Now, when you fast forward in Revelation, the same 144,000 are standing on the mountain with Jesus when he returns. And so there's not one of them lost. It's not 143,998. It's 144,000. They are protected. And when we see coming up in the, in the upcoming chapters, the spiritual warfare that's going to be going on during this time, the supernatural events, the attacks from Satan and his fallen angels, it is no wonder that people, an innumerable multitude, are going to come to the Lord watching this battle play out of them declaring Jesus, Satan's attacks, and them sealed and protected the entire time. And as I mentioned, some people believe this will be the greatest number of people saved in the history of the earth. And I can't argue one way or the other. It probably is. Uh, there could be a billion people saved in this seven-year period. We don't know, but it'll be interesting to see. We get to meet them in heaven. We're going to see that in a minute. Now, the people who get saved obviously perish because they're in heaven, and, and we saw in the fifth seal, they're crying for vengeance. They're crying that, Jesus, how long must we wait until you avenge us in this, the fifth seal in chapter six? Now, Jesus knows how many of them will get saved because he says, not yet. We have to give your brethren time to get saved. And so he knows who's going to accept him and who is not. So notice at the end here, the Holy Spirit takes time to describe what they are wearing and holding. And it'll become important at the end of this message. But they stand before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. So they are doing something different here than what we were doing back in, in chapters 4 and 5. Okay, in verse 10. And cried with a loud voice, so this innumerable multitude is crying with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. There is only one that sits on the throne. Despite Satan's attempts to raise his throne to the same level, there is only one. And praise God, there is only one. But that was the temptation right all the way back in the garden in Genesis 3. How did Satan tempt Eve? Surely once you do this, you will be like God. And in, in Isaiah 14, the five I will, Satan did not want to take God's throne. He wanted his throne to be equal to God's throne. It's important to note that difference because the temptation is you can be like God, not that you can overthrow him. You can be co-heirs or equal to him and that's what Satan is trying to do. And you see that a lot in a lot of the false occultic practices that are raising up in our world today. The whole New Age movement, you get the lie is, well, if you get to a point of enlightenment, you can be like Jesus. Okay, that's not biblical at all. You are to be under Jesus, and his Holy Spirit fills you. But look here, there's only one. And Daniel 7 verse 9 talks about this. I beheld till the thrones were cast down. Now, in chapter 7 of Daniel, we're going through this in men's Bible study right now, verse by verse, but 
the thrones that were cast down, the word literally means to set or are placed. And so Daniel gets treated to a throne room vision just like John in Revelation. So he's in the throne room of the universe and the thrones are set. Now he does not see who sits on those thrones because the church is hidden in the Old Testament. So all he got to see were the thrones being set and someone sitting on them. He didn't get to see who it is that's sitting on them. But we know from Revelation 4 and 5, it's the church. The church is the one sitting on these thrones. Okay, the word literally means to be placed or set, and it's describing the thrones of the 24 elders from chapters 4 and 5 in Revelation. So if you, if you missed those lessons when we were here a couple months ago, check those out on our YouTube channel and get caught up in that. But there's only one. Okay, and look what he says. And the ancient of days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool, his throne like a fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. The ancient of days, that's one of my favorite titles for the Lord, the Father. He is the ancient of days. He's the everlasting. Okay, before time he was, and after time ends, he will be. And there's only one. There's only one that can sit there. So who's sitting on those thrones? From Revelation 4, the first four verses tells you, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me. Now that links back to 1 Thessalonians 5 at the rapture event, where he will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and the sound of a trumpet, and we will be caught up or the word in the Greek is harpazo. It literally means to be taken by force. That's at the rapture event. And this voice, this trumpet, in chapter 4, verse 1 said, Come up hither, and I will show you things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. And there's that phrase again. And one set on the throne. Again, there is one that sits there, and he is king. And no matter Satan's attempts, he's not going to overtake him. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in the sight unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. Or really in the Greek, the word is thrones. So John is seeing the number of the thrones. And that number represents the church. When you go back to uh, Peter, we'll see that in a second. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Okay, so the church has a different situation here. Remember the tribulation saints, they're wearing white raiment and holding palm branches. The church is sitting on a throne wearing a crown. And it's a hint that there is a different group of people here. And we're going to break down who they are. Okay, in verse 11, And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God. Okay, if all we did for eternity was worship God, I would be okay with that. That would be awesome with me. But we're going to have actual responsibilities and roles and things to do to be about the Lord's business. And in verse 12, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And how many things are there here? Remember, you cannot count the number of sevens in the book of Revelation. It's totally inexhaustible. But there are seven here. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might. So you have seven things they're praising God with. Okay, in verse 13, and one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? In other words, somebody from the church is approaching John right now, saying, Hey, who are all these folks in white raiment, and where do they come from? And I love it because John's response is, Sir, thou knowest. In other words, I have no idea, but you know. You tell me. And he said to me, these are they which came out of great tribulation. Okay, so these are tribulation saints. They come out of the tribulation. We are specifically promised by Jesus that the church would not only not go into it, but he would protect us from the very time of it. Okay, so that's the difference. These are people that are saved 
out of that time, we are saved from that very time. Okay, two different things, and it's important to rightly divide the word of truth of God's word. And have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I, I love that somebody in the church has a sense of sarcasm here because he's asking a sarcastic question. Hey, who are these people? Where'd they come from? And John's going like, hey, you know, you tell me. And so it's kind of a, a sarcastic exchange, which I just, I love that we get to keep our sense of humor in heaven. Uh, and God has the greatest sense of humor. Uh, so in verse 15, therefore, are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple? And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. So God gives their job description here. Okay, their job description is to serve him day and night in his temple. These tribulational saints are serving in the temple of the Lord. Now, it could be two things. There, we know there is a temple in heaven because the tabernacle Moses built was a blueprint from Hebrews of the heavenly reality. But it could be a reference to the millennial temple as well. It's not really clear. Are they serving in the millennial temple or the temple in heaven? And it could be both. Uh, we're unsure, but just think about that. They shall no longer, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore, neither shall the sun light on them anymore, and no, nor any heat. Okay, for the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of water. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Now, so they're not going to hunger or thirst anymore, but we do know in the resurrection, when you get your resurrected bodies, that we will eat. Jesus never showed up in his resurrected body without eating. Um, and then when he came down to Abraham and Sarai, it was really Abraham and Sarai at the time, but at Sodom and Gomorrah, and he had two angels, what did they do? They sat and they ate with Abraham and Sarai. So you see Jesus eating a lot in the Bible, which I love. He likes the fellowship. He likes, it's one of the most intimate things you can do, right? To sit down with a family and break bread and to share a meal with them. And what is unclear is, okay, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. But it's probably not that they won't eat or drink. It's probably that they won't have a need for it. You see, so we'll probably enjoy it as a way God meant for us to enjoy it, which is to be a time of fellowship but maybe you don't need it for your resurrected body. Uh, we'll find out. But he's waiting, Jesus is waiting to finish the Passover cups with us. Uh, remember in the upper room, before he was crucified, you had the cups, the four cups of the Passover, and he saved the last one. And he said, I will, surely I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until we are together, we as in the church. And he does that at the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Revelation 19, we get to finish that cup with Jesus, which will be amazing. Okay, so the tribulational saints, and look at verse 17. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of water, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Now, why would you have tears in heaven at this point? You know, just think about it. Why at this point do they even have tears? Well, it's likely because of lost opportunity, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, but it's likely because we're all going to be conscious of our lives. What did we spend time doing? Where did we put our energy? Where did we put our resources? Where did we put our heart's desire? Was it on things for the kingdom, or was it on things for man and of the flesh? Now, the sun will not light on them. This could be a reference to at the end of the millennium, in a new heaven and new earth, we know there is no more sun. Jesus is once again the light of the world, which he goes back to the point before Genesis 1-2, where he was the light of all, because he created heaven and earth, he dwelt with everybody, but then after Satan and his angels rebel and fall, he judges the earth, it sits desolate and void, and then he starts to put it back together, which is why he creates the sun in the six days of creation, as we generically call it, or recreation. So there's a whole study there you could get into, but he's, there's no more sun lighting on them is likely a reference to the new heaven and the new earth where there is no more sun because he's the light of the world once again, as he declared in John. So different types of saints in the Bible. In Matthew 11:11, 11, 11, 
says, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, think about what Jesus is saying here. There's nobody born of a woman greater than John the Baptist, but yet someone that is least in this kingdom is greater than he. And so he's giving you a hint that there are different types of saints throughout the Bible. There's different groups of people. John the Baptist, we looked at last time, was the close of the law and the prophets. Jesus said the law and the prophets were until John. So he's not a part of the church. But the least in the church is greater than he, is what Jesus is saying here. Now, the three different types of saints in the Bible. Now, you can discern these from the scriptures, but there could be others, I suppose. Uh, maybe this isn't an all-exhaustive list. Uh, but there's Old Testament saints. They close with John the Baptist, and then the church is formed. They do not get their resurrected bodies until Jesus steps foot on earth in Revelation 19. And you see that in Zechariah, in Job, and in Daniel. So the Old Testament saints are waiting to get their resurrected body until Jesus returns and steps foot on the earth. The church, we're this peculiar gap of people that there's nobody been like us before us and there's nobody like us after us, where the Holy Spirit is indwelling you. You are the indwelling vessel of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and go, which is why David prayed that, Lord, take thy spirit not from me, because it would come and go in and out. And you saw this in the temple a lot, where the Shekinah glory would fall down, and then it would leave, fall down, and leave. And remember what Jesus said, I must leave so the Comforter can come. The Comforter is the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is somewhat exclusive of Jesus. So Jesus had to show up to die for us, but he had to leave so the Holy Spirit would come. So it's kind of the reverse. The Holy Spirit must be removed, which is the indwelling Holy Spirit in us, before Jesus can come back. You know, the reverse is kind of true. I must bring the comforter home so I can return. And so that's why the, uh, another reason why the church must be raptured before Jesus returns. But you have the church, we get our resurrected bodies at the rapture. And so we saw this in 1 Corinthians last time, in the twinkling of an eye, you shall be changed. Mortality must put on immortality, and you're gonna have a body like Jesus. And then there's tribulation saints, and the Bible's not really clear when and how do they get their resurrected bodies. Not sure. Um, we'll find out. We'll be there when they start arriving in heaven, so we'll get to ask them. But there could be some others. We'll see. It's wait. We'll wait to find out. So there's two types of saints so far in Revelation. There's the 24 elders and the tribulational saints. And notice the Bible gives you characteristics of both groups of people. The 24 elders are crowned. They have harps, not palms. They're kept out of the tribulation in Revelation 3.10. We sit on thrones, and this is a reference back to 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Peter 2, Revelation 1. And we reign as kings and priests in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Peter 2 and Revelation 1. The tribulational saints, they're not crowned. They have palms in their hands. They're saved out of the tribulation, and they stand before the throne, and they serve God day and night in his temple. And so, and they're not recognized by John, which is interesting when you think about it. John did not know who these people were, but the church did. So it's kind of interesting to recognize that even. But we have these different groups of people. So in 1 Corinthians 6, speaking of us, dare any, oh, well, okay, one sec. I added this verse in just to give you a quick sidebar. Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? The word there, saints, he's, he's speaking about the church at this point. But what I want you to notice is God's word says if you have a matter against a brother, you're not to go before an unjust court with an unrighteous judge, right? You're supposed to work it out amongst yourself. Work it out in the church. And Why? And this is where the next verse comes into play on the different types of saints. Verse 2 and 3. Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matter? In other words, 
no matter how small the dispute is, don't take it, or how big it is, frankly, don't take it before a court, a, a judge that judges outside the word of God. That's what you're not, you're not supposed to do that. Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life. So you are destined to sit on a throne judging the world and judging angels. Okay, the tribulational saints are serving God night and day in his temple. Do you see the difference? There's a difference between what the church is going to do and what these guys are doing. And so judging angels. Now, when you read that, you should think, why are we judging angels? What angels need to be judged and why do they need to be judged? What did they do that deserves judgment to begin with? Well, that takes you all the way back to we know in Revelation, a third of the angels fell with Satan. And we know there's a lot of detail you can get from Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 about Satan and his future. We get to look upon him as he's going to be cast down to the earth. And the whole world is going to wonder, is this the guy that led all of us astray and that destroyed kingdoms and this, that, and the other thing? There's a whole list. Read those two chapters. It's fascinating. But the angels that rebelled with him, we are going to judge. Okay, in Revelation 1, verse 6, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. There's a, a hearken again. He's made us kings and priests. The church, we are kings and priests. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So in Revelation 1, you can see that. Okay, different types of saints. Uh, this leads into a whole discussion about what are the crowns the 24 elders are wearing? What are these crowns? Why do we get them? How do we get them? Who gets them? Do we all get the same crown? Does Jesus have the same crown for me that he has for any of you in this room? Or do you have a different crown? You know, there's a difference here. And if you do not rightly divide the word of truth, you're going to miss this, this whole concept. And I'm personally convinced that because the church has not taught this, I've never heard this my entire life growing up in the church, but because the church has been negligent in teaching this, not all of them, but I'm just saying a lot of them, um, it has made a lot of people in Jesus apathetic because they believe that, well, I got saved, I don't need to do anything else now. I've got my ticket home, I'm good to go. When the Bible says quite the contrary, in 1 Corinthians 3, this is your, the passage. I want to go through this. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the first thing to notice is you've got to lay, the, lay, the foundation is laid, which is Jesus. That is the foundation. Remember, Jesus talks about this. Any man that builds on this foundation, the waves will hit his house and he'll stand. But those that build it on sand, it's going to be destroyed. He has that whole discourse there. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, as in this foundation being Jesus, gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, stubble, six things. Six is always the number of man in the Bible. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. Which day? He's talking about the day of judgment. Now, not judgment in a negative connotation, and you'll see that in a second. Because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire." This is your appointment if you are in Jesus. Notice what is being tested here. It's not your salvation. You shall be saved. If all you do in your life after you're saved burns up at this point, you're still saved as yet so by fire. This is, your salvation is not being tested. It's what did you do with it. That is being tested. And it's passages like this that have confused people and, and makes people think it's a works-based salvation. And it's not. Okay, there's a difference. Jesus paid it all. Once you accept it and you are in him, you are forever in him. The question is, what did you do with it after that? Okay, that's like 
you're finally in the game. Now, what did I do? And notice, there's six items here that you can build in your life with Jesus. There is gold, silver, precious stones. Those are not combustible by fire. Fire cannot burn those. Wood, hay, stubble is combustible. And so the fire, what the Holy Spirit is giving you a clue that when you do things in the flesh, you are building wood, hay, stubble. And the fire is going to burn it away, and you're going to sit there and watch your life that what you did, was it for Jesus or was it not? That's the bottom line. Was it in the flesh or in the spirit? And what's left, the gold, silver, precious stones, those are, as he says, shall receive a reward. Now, what is the reward? Well, do you think Jesus, Jesus is a just king, right? I mean, do you think that, don't misunderstand me, he rejoices over everyone, but if you've spent a life serving him daily and dying daily for him, he rejoices over you even more because you are doing what he asked you to do. In the Ten Commandments, the, uh, I think it's the third commandment, if I remember right, thou shalt not take the Lord's na- thy God's name in vain. Okay, that has nothing to do with your language. That has nothing to do with cussing and taking his name in vain in that regard. It has everything to do with ambassadorship. What did you do when you took the name of the king? That's what it has to do with. Don't take his name in vain. Okay, when you take his name and you do nothing with it, you are taking it literally in vain because you took the name of the king and then you just did nothing with it. It's like the parable of the talents. Remember, he gives the one guy 10, 5, and 1, and the one that has one goes and buries it and does nothing with it. And the master comes back and says, why didn't you at least just put it in the bank where I could earn interest on it? Because you did nothing with it, take from him that has little and give to him that has 10. Okay, because he's trusting. It's, it's a matter of, think about it. If you're, a, if you're an employer and you have employees, who are you going to give more responsibility? Who you can trust or who squanders time at the job? You know, it's the same thing. I mean, and what, what is amazing to me is that people don't pick up on this in the Bible because there are crowns listed. So what's being tested? It's not your salvation. And this is the appointment we have, 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now, we know in the Bible, in the New Testament, seven times you are the temple of God. And one of the references is 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. The judgment seat refers to, is, the word is bema seat. It's not a place of judgment like you are being scolded for doing something bad. It's a place of reward for running a race. It's the same seat that in the Greek Olympics they would stand before for participating. So you stood before it to say, hey, you did great. Here's your gold medal. You won the race. You, did, you got third. Here's your bronze medal. Uh, you didn't place in the race, but thank you for participating. It's a seat of excitement. It's not, we have such a negative connotation in our culture with the word judgment. You, you think about that and you think, oh, I don't want to be judged. You know, that sounds really bad. But it's a place of rewards. It's a place where when you die, you are appointed to go before this where Jesus is going to welcome you with open arms and to say, Welcome home, my good and faithful servant. Here's what you did for me. And you get to see that, and he rejoices with you over it. And so it's the same seat where judges would award Olympians for their success. Now, this is why Paul, over and over in the New Testament, refers to our life in Christ as a race. You know, when you pay attention to what he talks about, he is running a race constantly. It's a sprint. It's how can I win this race I am running for Jesus? Which is why he was concerned in 2 Peter 3, being led away with the error of the wicked, you could fall from your own steadfastness. In other words, you are susceptible to be led away from a life with Jesus. Not that you can lose your salvation, but you could lose your impact for the kingdom. You could be led away with error if you're not, what, grounded in God's word. That's the key. Are you grounded in God's word? Do you know what he wants you to do? Are you doing what he's asking you to do? 
And it doesn't have to be something great, like be on television like Billy Graham all over the world. It could be, hey, <clears throat> I want you to talk to your coworker that doesn't know the Lord. You know, I want you to talk to a family member that doesn't know the Lord. I want you to pray for this person. You know, the, the simplest way you can get involved in the kingdom is to pray. Go to your prayer closet. Close the door. Kenzie and I were talking about Ephesians 6 this morning before church. The seventh element is prayer. That's the heavy artillery. You can go in. You can pray on behalf of everyone. Pray for this church. Pray for your family members. However you, however you feel led by the Spirit to pray. Do that. Okay, when you go and you read the book of Hebrews, the whole book is centered around five warnings to Christians to fall away. There are five things the book of Hebrews is structured around, and it leans on the Exodus generation as an example or a type. Okay, the Exodus generation, they were under bondage in Egypt. They were redeemed and saved by the blood of the Lamb, remember the Passover. They were led through baptism by the parting of the Red Sea. Then they had what should have been an 11-day journey to the promised land. But yet, through their unfaithfulness and unbelief, it took them 40 years to get there because they didn't do what God was asking them to do. It should have been 11 days, and it took them 40 years to get there. But they were a redeemed people, according to Exodus 6, verse 6. So, over a million people were led out of Egypt. And in Exodus 12, 37, it counts 600,000 men of the age of 20 or above alone. So that didn't include women and children. So multiply that by whatever, 3.5, or in our church it'd be like 8.7 or something. But there's a lot of people here. There's probably several million people being led out of Egypt. And after all of their wilderness wanderings, there's only two that inherited the kingdom. Only two, Joshua and Caleb. God had to wipe out everybody else and take them out of the ball game because they were unfruitful for him. It's a picture of inheriting a reward from our Savior, our King, who's really serving him. What are you really doing with your life? You cannot lose your salvation. John 10, uh, think about this same generation begged to go back to Egypt in bondage, but God would not let them because you cannot lose your salvation. Look at John 10 but you can lose your inheritance. Moses, one of the most venerated men of God ever to walk the earth, was not allowed to enter the promised land because he blew it. God told him to strike the rock the first time and water would gush out, and he did it, and it did. And it represented the first arrival of Jesus. The rock had to be struck, and then the Holy Spirit poured out. The second time, he was supposed to speak to the rock, but he struck it again because he was angry. And remember, God says, that's not what I told you to do. I'm not mad at these people. Don't be angry. Speak to the rock, and the water would come. But because he didn't listen, um, he did not get to go in the promised land because he didn't obey God. And that's a clue, a model for us. And by, if he would have spoken to the rock, it was to model the first and second arrival of Jesus, that Jesus would be struck first, and then he would come back, and he would speak. Because in Revelation 19, how does he destroy his enemies? By the word of his mouth. He just speaks, and it happens. But Moses was at the transfiguration. He was saved but did not inherit. So think about the prodigal son. You know, he left and blew his whole inheritance, but he came back and he never lost his sonship. And remember, the father is sitting there waiting for him to turn the corner and to come back. And he, it's the only place in the entire Bible you see God is in a hurry, by a type, by a model God is waiting. If you are in him and you have gone astray, he is waiting for you to round that corner. And he runs and meets you where you are. And he will bring you back bit by bit, step by step, piece by piece, verse by verse. He'll bring you back. And in Colossians 3, 23 through 25, receive the reward of your inheritance. You know, just pick up, when you are going through the Bible over and over, pick up how detailed God is about over and over your reward, your reward, your reward. And in the Bible, it lists five different crowns. Crown of life, crown of righteousness, crown of glory, crown imperishable, crown of rejoicing. And this is not an all-inclusive list. These are five in the Bible. But 
there could be, I don't know, there could be an infinite number of crowns. There could be a number that's innumerable also for little things that you did. Did you feed the homeless? Did you help orphans and widows? Did you clothe the, the homeless? Did you help the sick with medical needs? You know, what are they? So let's look at these, these five crowns real quick. Uh, the crown of life, this is in James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. The crown of life. So the word temptation here in the Greek, it literally means the trial of man's fidelity. Okay, think about that. How committed are you to the one that saved you? You know, you have a marriage obligation. Jesus describes his relationship with us like a marriage. We are the bride of Christ. He is the bridegroom. So it's a testing of your fidelity. It's a testing of, are you... Austin, go back one real quick. So it's a testing of how committed were you to that marriage relationship, okay? Did you endure the temptation and did you withstand it? And there's a crown of life waiting for you, which is amazing. Crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4.8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day and not to me only, but unto all of them that also love his appearing. So if you are looking for the second return of Jesus, there's a crown laid up for you, a crown of righteousness. Do you love his appearing? Are you homesick? Are you begging to come home? You know, in, the, in what we generically call the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, you can pray. You are literally praying for Jesus to return when you pray that prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His will is not being done yet on earth. Um, he would will that all are saved and all are not saved. So it, there will come a time when that changes. Crown of glory in 1 Peter 5. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly. In other words, if you have a call on your life to feed the word of God to his people, do you do it joyfully and willingly, or do you do it begrudgingly? You know, think back to Jonah. Jonah was to go and to preach an eight-word message to Nineveh, and he did it begrudgingly. <laughs> and he ended up in the belly of a well as a result. But it was eight words, and out of those eight words comes the greatest revival documented in the entire Bible. We know in Nineveh at that time, there probably were a couple million people. And when you read Jonah from the king all the way down to the very least of them, got saved. Not for filthy lucery or filthy reward, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage. That's one of my favorite titles of us in God's word. We are his heritage. Because when all of this passes away, what is left? You and I. We are left. And we are God's heritage. You know, think about when someone dies, they pass on an estate you know, Jesus died, and what estate is he passing on? It's the church. And guess what? The one that gets to come back to collect it was the one that formed it, which is pretty amazing. But neither is being lords over God's heritage, but being ensembles to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. So if you are feeding God's people in some way, there's a crown of glory. Okay, the fourth one, crown imperishable. Know ye not that they which run in a race, here's that, that phrase again, run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain, and every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. In other words, a lot of people put time and effort and energy and their heart's desire into obtaining something that is corruptible. And what I love about that is Mason Kelly sang that new song this morning, Shiny Things. It's all about that. Okay, doing something in the flesh is to receive something that is going to just go away at some point. It is literally going to burn up, according to Peter. Okay, so a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible crown. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, 
but I keep under my body and bring into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. In other words, there's something that Paul was concerned about that he could do to become a castaway in terms of losing a reward in the race. Okay, it's not about salvation. The fifth one in the Bible, crown of rejoicing, 1 Thessalonians 2. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. So those people that they were leading to Jesus, that was their crown of rejoicing. That when Jesus returns and they are with him, they appear there to celebrate over that. You know, you may have led someone to Christ when you were a kid that you've totally forgotten about, but God hasn't. And there's a crown there, a crown of rejoicing. You're going to rejoice when you see at one point, I was obedient in my life, and because of that, this person has eternal life because God used me in some unique way to reach them and to be an instrument for him. Uh, And in the book of Revelation, the last list here, in chapters 2 and 3 are all to the church, there are rewards to the overcomer, and there's seven of, or I'm sorry, eight of them listed. It's to eat of the tree of life, not heard of the second death, the hidden manna, the white stone with a new name on it. Jesus has a new name for you, and I cannot wait to figure out what my new name is. It's, it's probably going to be something really nerdy, I don't know, but uh, power over the nations, white raiment, a pillar with a new name in his temple to sit with Christ on his throne and to inherit all things at the very end of Revelation in chapter 21. So there's a list to the overcomer. The overcomer is in 1 John 5, if you're curious about who that is. He that overcomes the world is he that confesses Jesus is Lord. So there's rewards there for the overcomer. Okay, so that kind of wraps up chapter 7. So you see all this multitude of tribulational saints that are saved. They're with palm trees They're serving God night and day. We, on the other hand, as the church, have crowns and we are sitting on thrones. And what that should do is make you urgent, a sense of urgency, it should instill a sense of urgency to get as many people as you know into the church, into the point where they get to go home to be in the throne room before all of this happens. So how do you do that? It's really simple. It's Romans 10, 9. If you're watching this online and you don't know the Lord, it's very simple in Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's that simple. And the question and all that stuff we went through is then what do you do with it after you're saved? What do you do with what God has entrusted you with? All of us in this room, all of us watching online, God has entrusted us with something. It could be a business, it could be a blessing of communication, it could be a blessing of teaching, it could be a blessing of taking care of people, it could be a blessing of serving people in some unique way, maybe it's building something. You have a talent, God has blessed you with something, and the greatest joy that you will have in your life is to figure out what is it and how do I use it for the kingdom. That's when you will have real contentment. So you can make sure you have a one-way ticket to the throne room before all of this starts. And he wants to welcome you home. If you're watching this, he wants to welcome you home. So Isaiah 118, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And so anything you've done in your life, it doesn't matter what it is, it doesn't matter how bad it was, doesn't matter how against the Lord you were, he will wipe it all away. There's nothing you can do that he will not forgive. So if you're watching this and you don't know him, please go to him today. So with that, I'll close us in prayer. Lord, we just thank you so much for this time together. We thank you for what you're doing in and through New City Church. We thank you, God, that we have the promise of an eternal salvation, that, Lord, there is nothing we have to do to hold on to it. God, if you placed it in our hands to hold on to, we would find a way to mess it up and to lose it and to lose grasp of it and to be led astray. But, God, we thank you that in John you say, no one you have given me have I lost, none of them. I've lost none. 
So God, we thank you that our salvation is in your hands, but our responsibility is to walk as an ambassador for you. That's the key to life. And so Lord, we thank you for that promise. We thank you, God, that during this time and the tribulation that we are studying, that there is an innumerable multitude that will come to know you. We thank you, God, that there is salvation still available to the world, even in the greatest time of trouble, that you show grace and long-suffering and forgiveness to a unutterly Christ-rejecting world that wants nothing to do with your son, but yet your son is still active and bring as many as he can into the kingdom. We thank you for that. We thank you, God, that we get to be there and get to welcome the tribulational saints into a forever home, a kingdom that will be ruled in righteousness by a righteous king, by one that will sit on the throne. So thank you for that. We pray, God, this week you would speak to us on how can we be better stewards of what you've given us? How can we, as fiduciaries of your, your kingdom and of your word, what can we do to serve you in a bolder, mightier way? God, we thank you for this time together. Please be with us as we leave this place and prepare our hearts for the week ahead, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.